I actually have this theory with Steve, but probably with Elon too, that really, really brilliant people have a dark side that fuels the brilliance, you know, sort of this Jungian idea of, of the dark and the light. And I think Steve was very dark in some ways, but then brilliant in another way. And if he wasn't dark, he wouldn't have been brilliant. He would have been a product manager at some company. And I think Elon's the same way. Elon seems to me to be haunted. He seems to be a guy who's got demons, right? Like real demons. But that also creates stuff in the world. Why do we have insights when our mind is quiet? How do insights play a role in our ability to learn? And when do they impact the trajectory of our lives? Welcome to Insight Out, where we explore these questions and dissect how insights influence who we are and ultimately who we become. I interview New York Times bestselling authors and some of the most influential minds of our time to find out what insights have helped to make them who they are. When I realized that the world worked in many different ways, I'm going to choose to create a life that is specifically designed for me. I see infinite capacity to think and create. That's the magic that we all have. You can tap into that at any point in your life. You just have to decide to do it. And as a leader, you have to be a transition figure. As Dr. Covey said, be a light, not a judge. Be a model, not a critic. If you're like me, constantly working to design a life that will allow you to reach your fullest potential so that you can leave your mark on this planet, then you're in the right place. I'm glad to have you on this journey and hope you enjoy this episode of Inside Out. My guest today has been a tech journalist, a TV producer and writer, a satirical novelist, a brand strategist, a best-selling author, and yes, even fake Steve Jobs. One might say he's a master of satire, a savant of snark, or a connoisseur of the comedic. He's built a career shining a spotlight on how we do business today, and what is revealed isn't always pretty. His memoir, Disrupted, My Misadventure in the Startup Bubble, was an instant bestseller and tells the story of the two years he spent working in a cult-like software startup. It's been called the best book about Silicon Valley today. His next book, Lab Rats, How Silicon Valley Made Work Miserable for the Rest of Us, gained critical acclaim for its examination of corporate culture and the toll that it's taking on our workers. If you've watched HBO's hit comedy, Silicon Valley, especially season two and three, then you've seen some of his work as a TV writer. And boy, do I love that. He wrote about technology at Forbes and Newsweek for a decade and a half from 1998 to 2012, pinning cover stories on Apple and Google features on Facebook and Twitter, profiles on Bill Gates, Ray Kurzweil, and Ariana Huffington, among many, many others. He's been featured everywhere. CNBC, MSNBC, Fox, BBC, Al Jazeera, CNN, NPR, you get the point. He is everywhere and very, very prolific. He talks about business, artificial intelligence, robotics. He loves talking about the singularity and is featured speaking about that very subject. We'll get into some of that tech and some of the future things happening in a bit. His writing also can be found pretty much everywhere you look. Fortune, New York Times, Wired, Wall Street Journal, The Economist, The Guardian, NPR, and BBC. So he has done a lot in his career. And as I mentioned, his blog, The Secret Diary of Fake Steve Jobs, drew an audience of 1.6 million monthly readers. And it helped to lead to the satirical novel, Options, The Secret Life of Steve Jobs. His brand new book, STFU, The Power of Keeping Your Mouth Shut in an Endlessly Noisy World, explains exactly why talking less, listening more, and speaking with intention can make you happier, healthier, and more successful. He brings a unique perspective to the world of tech combining his journalistic expertise and comedic sensibility with his experience as a marketer and screenwriter. And he's built a career saying and writing things that most people would be afraid to. And I can't wait to hear his insights on the current state of business, technology, and the future. It is with great pleasure that I welcome to the show, Dan Lyons. Wow. Thank you for having me. It was quite an intro. I appreciate it. I'm really grateful that you invited me to be on the show. Thank you. Dan, it's 
absolutely my pleasure. And you make it easy. Your career is fascinating. And I appreciate it as someone who's experienced being in Silicon Valley, working for Tesla and having my journey in corporate be what it was. I got to see firsthand a lot of the things that you write about. But before we get into current state, I want to talk about your childhood, specifically how your childhood, watching your dad work, I believe at Bell Labs and and AT&T and understanding what work environment was then versus what it is today. How did experiencing that, witnessing that help to inform the critical lens that you look at business today? Wow, I'm blown away. You did some research. I don't know where you found that about my dad, but yeah, I grew up in a town called North Andover, Massachusetts. In this town, there was a factory, and I think it might have been the biggest manufacturing facility in the world at the time, and it was called the Merrimack Valley Works, and it was Western Electric in those days, which was owned by AT&T. So they made you know telecom equipment. And my dad worked there his whole life. He worked his whole career. Well, he went from the Merrimack Valley Works and then went into international and went overseas and became sort of high up in what was then, then became Lucent. But growing up, we're in this town and this plant created not prosperity. This was not a really rich part of the world, but it created a middle class. I think it was a lot like the way automotive factories operated. And so when you got a job at the Merrimack Valley Works as a factory worker without a college degree, you knew you were going to have a middle-class life, a comfortable life. You'd have enough to buy a house, raise kids, have a couple cars, go on vacations. You could have a good life. And in fact, there was also the potential to advance and to become a manager and to move up within the organization. So there was career development at every level. My dad started as an engineer and worked his way up and became an executive. But my baseball coach worked there. (laughs) Everybody in town worked at the Merrimack Valley Works. And yeah, and so what struck me is that the CEO of AT&T at the time and of Western Electric didn't make 300 times what the average worker made. And I think there was almost a sense of that would be be wrong. It would be a shame to get that much. My dad still remembers the time I think it was the AT&T CEO, was one of the first CEOs to make a million dollars a year. And that was a big thing. And it was, you know, not controversial, but it was a big deal. So I think, yeah, that was a, it was a time when wealth was distributed more evenly across an organization where top management and investors, even Wall Street, were not getting the lion's share of the profits while workers got nothing. It was distributed more evenly. But what really struck me and still does and still seems to me uh, something companies could do. is something that HP did. HP was the same way. They really believed that part of their role as a company was to create prosperity, to create good jobs for people and their families. And uh, this goes back to Henry Ford, who felt the same way. But yeah, the idea of what does a company exist to do? And that was the model I guess I grew up with. I guess it was formative for me. I think also you know, I'm old enough that I began work in the last century and there was a whole different compact between companies and employees in those days. I am now violating my own rule of my own new book of talking too much. So I'll wrap up there. But yeah, it was a great question. Look, there's no denying this incredibly shrinking middle class that we are seeing firsthand unfold before us. And so it only stands to reason that we we need to look at where we've gone wrong. In COVID, we started changing things and some things changed. We go outdoor dining or this happened or that happened. And like all of a sudden, there's some actually some good improvements being made. But then I also recognize that so many things got worse. So many things changed for the worse. I now know why when I was much younger, I would hear my grandparents say things were better back then. This was better back then. And it's like, it's so true though. Things were better in so many cases. And I hate to say it, but it's discouraging and disappointing. And so I'm curious, like, where did we go wrong? Like in business, if you could pinpoint a time in history, is there, what were the collection of factors that have made us where we're at today? It's a sort of a long sequence, but I'll try to do it quickly. I wrote about it in my last book in Lab Rats and I pegged it to 1970. 
And Milton Friedman wrote an essay that became very influential, which was something along the lines of the purpose of a corporation is to make money That's or make a profit. It's a famous essay. You can look it up. And it basically said, you don't exist to do anything other than make money for your investors. And that triggered a couple things. That philosophy led to, in the 80s, the leverage buyout craze, the Gordon Geckos of the world. You buy a company, you split it up, and you, you enrich investors, but you destroy jobs. It led to, in the 1990s, companies like IBM, and I don't want to single them out, but a lot of companies raided their pension funds. They had pension fund surpluses, and they found out they could take that and apply it to their earnings. That way, they could goose their earnings. Investors would do well. And at that point, management had aligned its interests or its incentives with Wall Street. So whatever was good for Wall Street was good for your CEO and your C-suite. And then what they decided is, okay, we can take the surplus, but then you thought, well, we can create a surplus by cutting back on what we're going to provide people in their pensions. And so they started gutting pensions and retirement benefits for people. So there was another pullback. And then in the age of the internet, I think there was a new bargain that was made. And I don't know where it begins, but one turning point to me was when companies started going public without making a profit. Until the mid-90s, I think it might have been, was it Mosaic? Oh, Netscape. Netscape was the first company to go public while losing money during the dot-com bubble. Until then, and I was covering IPOs and then I covered Microsoft's IPO, you had to have a track record of, I think, several quarters of profitability. There wasn't any law about it, but just investors wouldn't touch it. And in the dot-com bubble, in that delirium, that went out the window. And then you created this model, which I call grow fast, lose money, cash out, where for the last 10 or 15 years, Wall Street investors haven't cared about profits. They've cared only about growth. So you have companies that have been in business for 10, 15 years that are quote unquote successful that have literally never posted a profit, never, ever. Now, if you're in a model that where you're never going to make a profit, but you're, you're going to run it as bare bones as possible, it creates no incentive to treat workers well. It cre- in fact, it creates the opposite. It creates an incentive to treat workers poorly, to treat them as disposable widgets you can plug in and plug out. And that became kind of codified. It was another big turning point when Netflix released this thing called its culture deck or its culture code, which you can find online. It's a PowerPoint deck that talks about their thoughts on HR. Yeah. So we've now created this model where the investors and the founders make huge amounts of money and everybody else makes nothing. So you see like the Jeff Bezos, the Elon Musk of the world, where the top people make all the money and the bottom are treated like widgets who are going to be replaced as soon as we can automate your job. And right now it's very top of mind with chat GPT and all the advances being made. People are starting to see their job as they know it is at risk. It's a clear and present danger. So before we get into the future, which I'm very excited to talk about that, get your thoughts on that. I do want to go back in the past a little bit more on your own journey. You spent a decade at Forbes as a senior editor writing about technology. And you said, you may not remember saying it, but you said you loved every minute of it. Great colleagues, great editors. You learned a huge amount. You also called Newsweek the greatest news magazine in the world. You said you worked with fantastic, brilliant colleagues and you called your experience there glorious. So this is a really interesting data point for me because you've spent a lot of your career really looking and examining with a critical eye, how businesses are making some missteps. But you speak very glowingly about those two organizations. What did they do well to create the experience that you had? That's a really good question. The answer might be twofold. One is that I just loved the work I did. I thought that was the best job you could ever have. You could go out and find interesting stories and fascinating people and then go interview them and write about them. To me and and I happened to really get excited about technology and science. So it was, you know, I could get paid for this. I couldn't believe it. And, you know, I think there was a sense, there was a different compact between management and labor, let's say, where, you know, firing people was seen as something that rarely happened. It was very unfortunate and regretful. Nobody 
wanted to fire anybody. It was, it was weird for somebody to get fired. It wasn't this constant churn and turnover. So you had a sense of safety and a sense that you could do good work, but you weren't constantly worried about being displaced by, I don't know, someone cheaper or by a machine. And you had a lot of support. You had career development. You knew you could stay there. You know, there were people at Forbes who stayed for their entire career, who worked there for their entire life. I stayed for 10 years. I would have stayed longer, I think, but the Newsweek opportunity came up. Newsweek, I knew, was already in trouble when I joined. They had already, in fact, I joined because Stephen Levy took a buyout and a bunch of other people did. I admired the publication so much that I wanted to work there, even if it was just a few years, to really see what it was like at the top of that industry of the media or the journalism business. And it was, it was, it was fantastic. Every time, literally, man, every time I walked in the door in New York, I'd travel down. I live in Boston. I would like pinch myself. I would walk through. I can't believe these guys hired me. I can't believe the people I'm working next to, you know? That's cool. Yeah. It was, it was amazing. And they had, you know, think about it when they did start going out of business. It was so old school. They paid everybody these huge severance packages. The Washington Post, which had owned Newsweek, was, you know, genuinely sad and, you know, said that they had never wanted to do this. So it was just a different feeling that you had with the company that you worked for. I can relate, having had some very enjoyable experience. At the time, I don't know I enjoyed it, but when I was working at Solar City, and I ran their internal communication program. I had an opportunity to create Solar City TV. So I would fly from LA up to Solar City to produce this weekly TV show, essentially. And it was it was fun. I was like pinching myself. Like I get to I get to go create a TV show for all these people. It was a magical moment of my life. At the time, I was like, oh, to fly up there. But like I really, in retrospect, I think I I appreciated a whole lot more. Yeah, I have a lot of friends from the journalism, people from Forbes. I, I saw some recently, no, Newsweek people. And we all sort of said, you know, we never knew how good we had it. Because I guess we used to grumble. We're like, dude, you look back on that job. That was an amazing job. Like, I know. Like, we all liked it. The Forbes people, it's been how many years since I left Forbes? Uh, 2008. We're still in touch. We all still really like each other. We look back on that time as one of the best times of our lives. Anyway. You know, the media business, you know, the media business has kind of become not so great. It's challenging. Well, one of the things that you've done really well is you've embraced the power of comedy. And I think about that a lot in, you know, obviously preparing for this interview, I've thought about it. But even before, I've thought about how you package things matters. And the reason it matters is from a human perspective, we only really pay attention to things that are different, meaning we're alerted. Our mind literally triggers when something that is unexpected is in our way because we need to be alerted to keep ourselves out of harm's way, right? We need our brain to pay more attention when it's not the monotonous day to day. And why humor works so well and why I believe it's worked so well for you and others, whether that be in media or social media, humor it's contagious. People want to share things that are funny. People remember things that are funny. They're more likely to notice things that are funny. I'm curious how you decided or why you decided to blend comedy, you know, obviously writing for Silicon Valley, but also doing a satirical blog. Like, how did that come about? Was it intentional? Was it by accident? Like, what was your route? Well, yeah, I think the, the fake Steve thing was probably the first time I tried writing that way. And it was a lot of us who are like beat reporters on the tech beat, you know, when we were not writing our stories and we were just talking to each other, we, you know, we'd all, we all knew all who, who's goofy and who's weird. You know, we knew all the, all the crazy stuff. Right. And we all thought it was nuts and we'd all make fun of it. These were not, you know, big secrets, but you couldn't say it in our couldn't write that in the paper or in the magazine, you know, but we all knew. And we all sort of, uh, it was one guy at Forbes who he and I actually thought about, like, maybe we could come up with like a show, like the daily show, but about tech or about business. Nobody really wanted that. Honestly, I didn't start writing Fake Steve with this conscious idea of trying to be funny. I was literally trying to figure out how to create a blog 
because I was at Forbes and I saw that print journalism was, you know, I'm not going to be here forever. And I thought I better know how to create a blog. And so I, there were three big platforms at the time and I started a different blog on each one. And then, oh, I started, yeah, Fakesty was on, on Blogger, on Google, which is also funny because why would Steve Jobs have a blog on Google, right? But, and it was really low tech. It looked like, it looked bad. You know, it was kind of badly designed, which also added to it. And I tried different, I had a Sergey Brin one. I had one that was called Random VC that was just like an anonymous VC, make, taking the piss out of VCs. And I did the Steve Jobs one for like four weeks and I shut it down and I realized, oh, people are trying to put it back up or asking, where did this go? And then I, I looked and said, oh, there's people been reading this stuff. Like I had told a couple of friends of mine, like, check this out, ha, ha, ha. And then it just grew. It just grew from there and the character grew. I didn't know anything about Apple when I started it, man. I didn't know that Al Gore was on the board of directors of Apple. I didn't know who Johnny Ive was. I didn't know any of those people. Not because I had never covered Apple. They were never in my beat. I covered like IBM and the really big, boring stuff. Yeah, it just went from there and uh, it had a following. See, I think what made it work was that Steve Jobs had a cult following. He was interesting to people and he was so reclusive. He created this vacuum because he would never say what he was thinking. But you knew, oh man, you knew he's a savage, right? And you knew he must be really smart and funny. And you knew, like, what does he really think about Steve Ballmer at Microsoft? Like, you can kind of make that up, right? And all the Apple fans are like, yeah, that's how we hate, you know, we hate Microsoft too. You know, then I did a book based on that. And then that actually got, uh, I got a deal to develop that as a TV show because in, Hollywood, they were looking for a Silicon Valley comedy for a while. I developed it and then it didn't get made. That was Icon? Yeah, that was Icon. Wow, yeah. dude, man, you are deep. Yeah, it was Icon. I, so I didn't include that in the intro. I didn't know enough about it. You gave it about as much time as it deserved. But it was Larry Charles, the guy who did Bruno and Borat. Uh, he was a Seinfeld guy and a curb. Yeah. And so what happened is we sold it to Epics, we developed it, and then it, no, they never shot a pilot. But then... Somebody turned around and sold, Mike Judd sold Silicon Valley. And I wrote to my agent, I was like, who sold that show? And I was like, and it was at WME, I think, right? And I was like, if they are hiring writers ever, can you get me a job there? And so they hired me. Season one, they just stood at the seat of the pants. And then when they thought, okay, we're going to get renewed, they actually called me, I think because of Larry Charles. But dude, the funny thing that I learned in two seasons there is that I'm not funny at all. Like I thought I was funny and people thought my blog was funny and the fake Steve novel was funny and the show was funny, but no, like you sit in a room with professional comedy writers and it's incredibly humbling. It was like, dude, you just, just do plot points for us. Just, you know, just come up with like, tell us what it would, like, we don't need you making jokes because your jokes suck. <laughs> I was like, it was seriously humbling. Really, really. I mean, and these were guys who didn't know anything about tech. That's the funny thing, right? Their domain is comedy. It could have been a show about a hockey team. It could have been a show about anything. It didn't matter to them. It was just sign. They were a bunch of Seinfeld guys. They were just, and like some really funny stuff that never was in the show was just in the room. These guys going back and forth. And I would sit there going, wow, like they're playing tennis with jokes. And it would be like, you'd be just falling over. So yeah. So I don't know. In terms of comedy, I would say I have a, <laughs> I stopped then <laughs> more or less. No, no, it's sort of. Well, listen though, you have that experience and the fact that you have that experience. Yes. You're watching comedic geniuses at work and you were, you were brought in. I'm thinking probably because you know enough about comedy, you appreciate comedy, you have that sensibility and you have this subject matter expertise that you know, business, you know, what's happening in Silicon Valley. It's the perfect combination. And even in an environment where it's fast paced TV show writing, I, I went to film school and made a movie and got to experience what it's like to see a movie that's written versus what's end up, what ends up getting made. And I know that you, you've mentioned in the past, then you just mentioned it just now, right? There's going to be things that happen on site while it's being recorded. You let them riff. I got a chance to be, get, get, to get reacquainted with the show. I watched it years ago and just watched it in preparation for this interview. But I was dying laughing and so is my wife. I mean, there's so many funny things in there. It's just like tears come out of my eyes laughing in some of the, in some of the scenes. And so I would say just having that experience, being a part of that and being, you know, you were there front row seat watching the back and forth to create 
what it ended up being. And I, I think it brilliantly portrays what happens in Silicon Valley in a maybe a hyperbolic way, in, 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 in a satirical way, but it, it really covers some, some meaty topics. It covers pay wage. It covers you know, fundraising. It covers diversity. It covers so many different topics that we need to be talking about. And I think that opens up the conversation. That's really, to me, such an, a beautiful thing about a show like that and, and other avenues, whether it be your blog or other things that other creators, other writers are making to help bring to light conversations that we should be having. My hope is that we get into a place where we do have more conscious entrepreneurs that are doing things not just for the bottom line, but also because they want to help others have a successful life, to live their own best life. And my, my hope is that more companies like that will exist. Uh, and I am curious what, what you, who you think maybe is doing that. Before we get into that, I, I do want to ask you this question because I'm curious about how you'll answer it. So I'll start by saying this. You've called Jeff Bezos the modern day Ebenezer Scrooge. You've called... <laughs> Did I? That's terrible. Deepak Chopra a charlatan and a quack. And you've publicly stated that my former employee, Elon Musk, is somebody that you do not like and you're not, you're not a fan of. So now I know that you, you, you might not remember saying those things, but let's not talk about the negative. What do you like about Elon Musk? What do you like about him? Oh, this is like when they ask the politician at, the, at a debate, the final question is, you know, they've been savaging each other. And then they're like, what's one nice thing you'd say? And they're always like, well, he's probably a good parent, you know? But um, yeah, uh, by the way, the Deepak Chopra, did I say that as fake Steve? Because I, I don't know anything about Deepak Chopra. I don't know where I would have ever said that. But okay, there's a lot, okay? For example, the idea that Elon would just take such risk that like he really didn't care if he went completely broke kind of think because he just knew well i can do it again you know what i mean he's just and he's got a vision like i know he doesn't make the rockets right at spacex he doesn't design the rocket he doesn't even run the company right they have a real um a ceo but he had the vision right and spacex has killed in the space industry i think we all we talk a lot about tesla because you know we all see the cars you don't realize how big an impact SpaceX has had. So yeah, you look at a guy who did like, okay, Tesla, fantastic success. SpaceX is another, Twitter, uh, TBD. But he's got interests everywhere and he seems to have like a big vision. He's a guy who can see something out there that doesn't exist and then somehow find a way to start building toward that. And I think that requires, I don't know, a certain kind of strength to actually a force of will to make that happen. You know, like people will say, oh, Elon didn't found Tesla. He, he was an investor and then he took it away from Martin Eberhardt. Okay, okay, fine. However, I would ask myself, if you had been that investor, Dan, could you have said, all right, Martin, you're out of here. I'm gonna take this over and I'm gonna build this into a successful company. No. No, I could not. I don't think most of us could. I think that's a really unique thing. You might be terribly flawed. You might be an awful person. I used to feel this way about Steve Jobs. I think I loved that he was in the world. I would not want to be in his family, right? I wouldn't want to be related to him. I'm not even sure I'd want to work for him, although I've talked to enough people who said it was worth all the abuse. But you know, in fact, I actually have this theory with Steve, but probably with Elon too, that really, really brilliant people have a dark side that fuels the brilliance, you know, sort of this Jungian idea of, of the dark and the light. And I think Steve was very dark in some ways, but then brilliant in another way. And if he wasn't dark, he wouldn't have been brilliant. He would have been a product manager at some company. And I think Elon's the same way. Elon seems to me to be haunted. He seems to be a guy who's got demons, right? Like real demons. But that also creates stuff in the world. Short answer, is that, that's what I admire God. I mean, who else has done all those things? Who else, not even who has, who could have, you know? I mean, brilliant people, Bill Gates couldn't have done that. Larry Ellison couldn't have done that, what he's done. Tim Cook, I think is the greatest leader in the world but couldn't have done that. 
you know, it's, it's unique. But you knew him, so I'd like to know what you think. I want to know. I want to know your side of it. Sure, sure. I'm happy to share. I mean, I had a unique perspective. I reported to the person who reported to him. So at my last role, but I didn't get one-on-one time with him or any of that. And but I got to experience how he operates. And I think the thing that stands out is his ability to quickly ask the right questions at the right time. So, for example, at the end of the year or end of the quarter, we'd be doing delivery. And he'd be asking logistical questions and really getting in the weeds with the delivery teams, asking the questions that will help get more cars into people's hands. And somebody, I don't, you know, I don't remember what his role was, but he was complaining and says, we don't have any more parking spaces. And Elon's like, that is not an excuse. Like just because there's not a parking lot does not mean there's not more space for vehicles. So it's just, I think he... Limited thinking is not something that computes for him. He does not allow limited mindset, limited thinking, or boundaries to push down what is possible. I mean, that's a very basic example, but I think it applies to anything that he does. And he famously teaches and is a big believer in first principles thinking, which I think at its core guides every decision he makes. So when you're looking at a vehicle, we're not looking at a vehicle and thinking, how can we make this incrementally better than other vehicles that other companies are producing. He's saying, what if we were to build a vehicle from the ground up, not knowing anything about vehicles? And so this kind of mindset helps him at Tesla, helps him at SpaceX. So instead of saying, well, why do we need to destroy every rocket? Why can't we land a rocket back down after it's launched? It's like people that we would think is impossible, he says is possible, which is a, a good lead in actually to my question is why do we have so many preposterous or characters in Silicon Valley. Why is that attraction so strong for for these types, these personalities that are that do have that kind of thinking? Short answer would be I don't know, but but a, a better answer I'll speculate is that a I think those people are are better able to raise money. They can get funded. They think about it. I was amazed by this. That in fact I write about it in in the new book because there was a. I interviewed a guy about listening, Jerry Colonna. He's an executive coach, and he has a whole company, and they, they do boot camps. And one of the, there's a guy there who specializes in listening. And he said, startup founders are the worst listeners, right? They said they're often like on the spectrum of narcissistic personality disorder. But more so, these are guys who can talk, right? These are guys who went into a room with a PowerPoint deck and got someone to give them hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe not hundreds first, but like could go in and walk out with that money. They can talk, but they can't listen. But I think that takes a certain, or not a certain, a lot of chutzpah, a self-belief. Those people have to be mini versions of Elon, right? They may not be where he is, but think about it. Like to really think like I can do this thing, you know, that nobody else has done. I realize there are a lot of copycats startup founders too. But yeah, I think there's a certain type. There's an, there's an audacity and an ego and a belief in yourself that only certain people have. And it's the only way to get the money to, to start one of these companies. That's a fascinating take. And yes, it makes perfect sense to me because if they're not necessarily good listeners, but they are audacious and they have enough of an ego or enough of confidence and enough bravado to say what they believe is possible in a very convincing way with a lot of conviction, people are going to buy into that, not only buy into it conceptually, buy into it financially to say, I'm going to support this, which is actually an interesting dovetail into another thought that I had in listening and, and watching and reviewing some of the, the things that, that you've brought into the universe. Let's look at so many of the startup founders that they have their business and then they have their pet project. They have something that they're advocating for, that they want to, they want to do education or they want to help the water crisis or they want to help any number of other things out there. What are your thoughts on maybe if they are good at, at doing this, if they are good at speaking up, if they have a platform for a cause and we already know that they're good at raising attention and awareness and to create some sort of excitement around a cause, what are your thoughts about them doing that if it's outside of their domain expertise? Because 
clearly like they have the attention and they have the ability to get people to rally around. But also I know that they're not experts in that space. How should they be going about doing it? I write about that too in the new book because I sort of identify, I think, five kinds of overtalkers, right? And I'm a talkaholic, which is one kind. But one of them are ego talkers. And I define that as the person who just talks more than everybody else because they legitimately believe that their opinions are worth more than everyone else's. And I think, you know, Silicon Valley is full of those kind of like Bitcoin guys who, okay, you made a fortune on Bitcoin. So now you know everything about pancreatic cancer, you know, or space travel or whatever. Now you know everything about everything. You must, right? Because look at how smart you are. But I get that. That's annoying and whatever. But here's a good example of, I think, someone doing it great. So Jeff Lawson, the CEO of Twilio, he's an amazing guy, like an amazing, amazing person and very successful. He's made a lot of money, very brave kind of guy who, you know, he's an engineer, right? But he's really used his platform recently to talk about San Francisco and said, all you guys are bailing out and you just, you came in, you trashed San Francisco and you just left. Like, I'm staying. Like, I'm going to stay and I'm going to try to fix the city. I live in this city. I want to make it better. Now, you know, does he know everything about that? No. But I, I know Jeff and I know he's the kind of guy who will say, let me go bring in people. I want to learn. Tell me how, but he's committed to it. He's genuine. He's not just, you know, mouthing off about it. I think he may be debated whether he should go public with that. I don't know if he wrote an essay or he did an interview, but there was one moment where he really spoke out and got a lot of attention. And I think even at the company, they were worried, like, you know, is this going to blow back on us? Is this bad? You know, if your CEO starts talking about something, and I don't think it did. I think it was that he's, he has legitimate passion. And I think it maybe raised people's opinion of him, or I don't even know if he cares about the what it does for his opinion or even what it does for Twilio's sales. I don't think it's that. I think he legitimately really loves San Francisco and wants to save it. So I don't know. I admire that. And I think a lot of these guys have the money and they have the uh, platform to really make big change. And I think it's cool when they do. What would you advise then if somebody does have the natural tendency, and obviously this is the topic of your new book, which is you talk less, listen more, like if I'm putting it as simple as, as possible. And so, and it could help in so many avenues. It could help with negotiation. It could help with customer service, sales, crisis management, all aspects of business. I mean, it really can apply to our personal life, our family life. I see it all the time. So what are some of the, the core tenets or principles your book obviously is going to get into a lot more detail, but what are some of those, I'd say, most crucial details or, or pillars that would help somebody that is potentially talking way too much? Well, there are ways to rein that in. So what happened is I started off realizing I had talked my way into you know trouble a couple of times, more than a couple. And for a long time, I had been aware, like, I have a problem. I'd go to a party and you know if I get, I get anxious, I'd just start talking. And afterwards, I'd say to my wife, like, did I talk too much? You'd be like, yeah, you know? So I'd, before the next one, I'd go, like, don't talk too much, don't talk too much, don't talk too much. And I would try really hard. I'd take Ativan, you know, just anything to not be that way. So it really began as this personal quest to fix myself. And I started off just two questions. Why are some people compulsive talkers? And B, how do you fix it? And so that sets me off. And I go off and I found communication researchers who had studied that exact thing and figured out why. The bad thing is they were like, here's what it is. Here's what causes it. And question number two, you can't do anything about it. You're screwed. There's no cure. But then I said, ah, there's got to be a way to control it. So I started talking to more people, developing other ideas. But here's one really cool guy I found, like an amazing guy. His name is Matthias Mel, a German guy. He's a professor at University of Arizona. And he said, he's been studying speech for like 20 years, right? It's all he does. Like has been his life obsession. He describes it like being a detective. He keeps trying to peel back layers of the onion because he's like speech is incredibly central to our lives. It almost defines us. If someone asks me, what's Billy like? What I really describe is how you talk, right? He's funny. He's nice. He's this. He, you know. And Matthias says, it's the one thing we've never studied. Like we barely studied speech, even though it's so central to us. Like we know we should take 10,000 steps a day. We know we should get this kind of sleep. Nobody ever thinks about speech, even though it's 
so much a part of us. So his first big thing, he had created this thing called the ear, electronically activated recorder. And the first one was just a clunky thing in the 90s, a tape recorder with a triggering mechanism. You'd carry it with you. It would switch on randomly. You didn't know when, and it would count how many words you spoke in a day, right? And it was a very simple one. Who talks more, men or women? And there was a big, there a lot of noise at the time about women speak three times as much as men. And it was like the old stereotype. And he blew that up and said, no, guess what? They both talk the same, 16,000 words a day. So then he goes, wait a minute. Instead of just counting how many words, can we study like what words they use? And so he did this whole thing and extrapolated and they figured, how much of your time are you spending on substantive conversations? How much are you spending on, you know, bullshit, small talk, chit chat? Then can we correlate that with happiness by people doing a self-reported test? And they found people who have better, more good conversations like this, you know, talking about real stuff are happier. They're happier. Then he said, can we correlate that with physical health? So they did another round, record, I don't know, thousand people, however many people, then compare it to blood draws. And they found better conversation people have better immune systems. And now that's about where he is now. And he's like, we're about to have this big breakthrough where speech is going to be medicine. His joke is take two conversations and see me in the morning. You know, you don't need a pill, go talk to a couple people. But that led me to start thinking about, okay, if you change the way you speak, can you make yourself happier? Can you make yourself healthier? Right. And then if you change the way you speak, talking less and listening more, there's lots of research about how that works for in leadership, in sales. So it started unwinding to me like, oh my God, this is really, this is really a big thing. I am curious, like, because you mentioned in your answer that there is definitive reasons why people are over-talking, or maybe there are uh, frequent reasons why people are over-talking. What, what was your reason, if you know, and what are some other common reasons people do it. The big thing is anxiety, actually depression. People who use the word I a lot, they call it I talk. People who really load up their conversation with I, it's like a credible sign that you're depressed. And so you can actually diagnose people through their language. Yeah. So I decided I'm a talkaholic, which is just a compulsion. And that when I looked into it, it I finally found the researcher who had figured it out. And it has to do with a imbalance in your, in your brain. And you, so you really can't fix it. You can try to control it, but you know, so other people, it's just anxiety, right? They're blabbers. They social anxiety. They go into a thing and they get nervous. So they start blabbing. Other people are blurters. They're really smart. Usually really quick witted fast. I had a friend who is like that and she's had like, I forget what it was. It's like 10 jobs in 16 years. Cause you know, you don't last long because you annoy people and people would say to her, you know, you're kind of obnoxious. And she's like, I am. I, I don't think so. Very bright like an MBA from a really good university. And one of her, yeah, I don't know if you read the book, but one of the, uh, one of the anecdotes is she's at a party with people she doesn't really know, like new, I think, coworkers. And they're talking about sriracha sauce. And someone says, oh, yeah, you can do this. But, but you know what you should never do with sriracha sauce? And she said, masturbation. And, uh, and, you know, like, I think that's really funny, right? But, and she thought of it. And she was like, I knew, read the room. These people are not going to laugh at that. They're, they're kind of stiff, right? But she like couldn't resist it. It was just so good that she couldn't resist it. So that's, that's another kind. Talkaholics are people who know that what they're about to say is going to hurt them. And then they say it anyway, because they can't not like they lack impulse control. Yeah. Other people are like big egos. Those are ego talkers, but Hey, here's another interesting thing. They've found that different kinds of over-talking, like pressured speech, it's another kind of speech. They're often connected to ADHD. I actually write this in the book that if you feel like you have a problem with overtalking, it may be a symptom that can lead you to get a diagnosis and to get help for your ADHD. And typically those people with some meds and therapy can actually control the overtalking. Yeah, no, that makes a, a ton of sense. And I, I'm actually not surprised. I also really appreciate what you said, uh, the, the individual who's been studying this for some time, it's like a medicine. They say laughter, if you could pill, if you could put it in pill form, it'd be the greatest medicine ever. It sounds like communication is in that same vein, so powerful that if we spent more time and attention thinking and focusing on how we're communicating, both 
the way in which we're taking in communication through listening and also the way in which we're communicating and the language that we use, all of these things help to create the happiness that we have. And it's, it's pretty important. Like, so if your life's work, Dan, is one, helping people laugh, and that's really important. And then two, now helping people listen and helping people communicate, you're doing things that are really helping people live a better life. And so I want to applaud you for that. And I, I know sometimes we forget to look at our own sort of body of work and things that we've done, you know, so I just wanted to share that as sort of a vantage point that I have. We look at the world we live in today and, and it's it's a fascinating world. Even in Silicon Valley, in I think it's uh, season two, you're already exploring, granted this was years ago when it came out, you're already exploring AI. You're exploring the lady and and the father uh, who has a, a you know, dis- basically has a, a helper, a woman who's the AI who's telling the kid to take the medicine, who's telling the kid to go to bed, doing all the things that the parent should be doing, quote unquote, but it's being replaced. It's disrupting parenthood, disrupting fatherhood. Dude, that was a true story, by the way. Yeah, so tell me it. What happened? No, Alec Berg, the showrunner, came in one day and he was talking about, I forget who it was, but there's some rich person. I have you heard about it. And they didn't want the kid to be mad at them. Right. They didn't want to discipline the kid. So it was, hey, well, oh, see, the lady says, yeah, yeah you're going to get in trouble unless you do it. Like, and we thought that was hilarious. And so he just made it into a story. But yeah, I guess Alec was way ahead of his time with that one. Yeah, now we all have these voice assistants. But oh, we have ChatGPT, right? I guess you could blame it on ChatGPT. Right. And I think what ChatGPT has done is it's really opened everyone's eyes that this is like, it's not fantasy anymore. It's reality. And it's so real. You see what it writes and you see what it puts out in a matter of seconds and it gives you chills because you're like, holy cow. So how can we use it for good? Like corporate ethics or something else? How can we use AI in a positive manner? You would have a better answer for that than I would. I should say, what do you think? Well, look, define AI, right? So AI, Tesla is using AI to make cars self-driving, right? Isn't that based on it? Well, they're doing machine learning, right? And they have this big machine learning operation and they have human in the loop and they're constantly refining the model. So yeah, that's one, right? We'll automate certain parts of life. Look, I think right now, and I know machine learning is sort of like the, well, how would you describe it compared to not even AGI, but compared to say a chat GPT, machine learning is pretty, it's not very spooky. It's not very, you know, otherworldly, but man, like people are using it now in sales. There's a company called Gong that will study, record thousands of hours of sales calls, study it all then come back and tell your organization, here's what works, here's what doesn't, right? The, the people who sold the most said this many words, they asked this many questions, their balance of talking, listening with this. Like you can teach people to communicate. There's another company that does it with customer service. There's a company called Butterworks. They have built this thing, a machine learning thing that will ingest thousands and thousands of hours of TikTok videos. And then analyze it for engagement and various things, and then sell that data to advertisers saying, so for example, if you have a puppy in a video, right? No matter how, puppies do much better than kittens, right? If you have a bicycle, for whatever reason, bicycles drive higher engagement. Someone with a white lab coat. So they they find these weird things and then creators go and build them. Now that's maybe helping make better ads. But I think there are ways in which machine learning is going to let us do stuff way better than we do now with way more precision. So that's making the world better in a, in all sorts of ways that aren't really evil or scary. I think the, you know, you asked me my opinion, my thought on it is we do have some level of control, right? Part of it is yes, the machine learning is going to realize through countless hours of study and understanding whatever it is that it's learning to, to help inform what that AI will ultimately do. But the thing I think about is, is like a simple example. So I, I follow this guy, Chris Doe. He puts out great content. He's a thought leader in his space, which is design and he's an agency owner. And they were doing a, a, a tour and he couldn't go to one of the locations because they didn't sell enough tickets. And so he asked ChatGPT to write a LinkedIn post with empathy and to tell the audience that we're not going to go to this place and here's why. And so what that's effectively done is it's allowed, and he posted it exactly as ChatGPT wrote it. Obviously, it's only as good as the prompt you give it. So of course, he gave it a very, very good prompt 
and maybe he refined it a couple times. But the point being is, for those who are maybe lacking in tone or don't have the emotional intelligence or for whatever reason, they move so fast that tact is not their middle name, they can use it to help massage messages and make things come across in a, in a better way and, and received in a better way. So that's that's one very, very practical example. But I also think we don't know yet. And so I think as we look at, at like, I've um, been talking to somebody who's doing some work in the consciouspreneur realm, where you're an entrepreneur, but you're doing it in a conscious way. And so if we could create a template or a model that we know works for one organization and, we, and is We've seen it work in effectively creating an environment, a workspace, a culture, and all these different things that is informed by what we know is best practices. And we could synthesize that because we're pulling that data, we're studying it, machine learning, studying it. And then we could apply it in other businesses through AI. That could be another way that we can hope and help businesses do the right thing. Because I think right now, I see a glimmer of hope that some businesses want to do the right thing. They're striving to do the right thing, but too many are still stuck in the old mindset of profit at all costs, which is what you've explored and what you've seen and, and I've seen where businesses are maybe the, the, the people at the top are making, making buku bucks, but everybody else is left to work their ass off for you know practically nothing. So anyhow, I'm, I'm probably doing what I shouldn't be doing, which is talking too much. No, I wanted to ask you, can I stop and ask you, what's a consciouspreneur? Because I've never heard that. And that sounds really interesting. Yeah. So my first interview on this show is this guy named Toby Corey. And he says, you can walk and chew gum at the same time. And what he means by that is you can be a company that makes money, but is also doing right by its employees. It's also doing right by the environment. It's also doing right by creating the culture and, and the atmosphere that you want. So it's it's being more aware and conscious of the experience that you're creating for the employees, for the shareholders, for the stakeholders. You think of everybody and, and instead of being one dimensional and just thinking about the bottom line, you're thinking about it in a much more broad sense. That's the way I understand it. That's my definition. But don't you think, I think that's true. Like we talk about capitalism as a bad, some people do, but I think capitalism has greater potential to affect change and good change in the world than other things. So look at Patagonia. I mean, that company is amazing, right? And <laughs> that's exactly the company that he talks about. Exact company he references. Yes. Yeah. So you can, you can do well and do good. And I mean, they treat their employees really well. You know, the, the, what's his name? Yvonne Schwinar, the, the CEO, he wrote a book called Let My People Go Surfing. And, you know, his whole deal is like, if it's a really good surf day, just don't come in, come in later, you know? Yeah, right? I mean, capitalism is a, could be a powerful driver of social change. Is a powerful and already is and, and will be even more so if we remind people of what matters most. So as we wrap up here, you mentioned Patagonia. I know that you've, you've had personal encounters with people at Microsoft and Google, and you said you found great people there. Where else can we look for signs of, of companies that are doing it the right way or people, you mentioned Tim Cook, or people that are doing it the right way? I think there are companies that are maybe returning to a set of values that we had. is not anything new, right? It's actually sort of basic golden rule. If you treat people well, they'll do good work and they'll be happy. And if they're happy, they'll do good work. I'll tell you like isolated examples. The CEO of Hilton Hotels, a guy named Chris Nassetta, he started his career as a summer intern or a summer job, like doing, you know, frontline work for Hilton. I don't know if it's changing rooms or, you know, laundry or kitchen, right? Oh no, he was cleaning toilets. Years later, he worked his way up. He came back after college, took a job and worked his way up and became the CEO. And they gave him this golden plunger award. Like the, I, <laughs> I think it was like, uh, you know, to remind him where he came. So he has a, a policy or had anyway, I think that every year, at least one week out of the year, everybody in the C-suite has to go work on the front lines. Doesn't matter where it is, change rooms, do something to basically connect them back to the business and to remind them, you know, why we're in business and what we actually do. And I don't know, I've always admired that, that story, that, that idea 
He was also making sure that frontline workers then saw, you know, company leadership and they felt more empowered. There's one famous story of someone in housekeeping, a woman housekeeping finds out that the people in this room are celebrating their anniversary. And so she calls down to the manager and says, hey, you know, these people are having their anniversary. Why don't we send up a bottle of champagne and some flowers or chocolate? Why don't we send something up? Like, so they did. And, and so the point is, Nasetta's approach to culture was letting good ideas bubble up from the bottom. And, you know, and then that woman who has that idea feels like, wow, I'm, I'm not just somebody who changes sheets, right? I'm actually part of this company. I'm creating great user experiences. So that's, that's one that I like. I'm sure there are a lot of other companies that are doing great things. I actually feel right now, especially in tech, where it's really tough right now. We just got o- over COVID. Now there's all these layoffs. And I think there are some companies that are realizing like, okay, we have an opportunity to rebuild now and make our companies more human-centric. But I can't think of one that's uh, as an example. I hope there are some. Yeah, I do too. And I think sometimes when things go south, it does provide opportunity to rebuild in a way that will hopefully embody the, the values that, that you would hope they want. And, and I know in not all cases that that's true, but I do believe that there is a decency that, that it should exist and in many cases does exist. And to your point, maybe now that the sort of rug's been pulled, people can look at the rubble as opportunity and rebuild with the right, framework in place. I'm so grateful that we had an opportunity to to chat about all of this. So for those listening, please go out, pick up STFU, The Power of Keeping Your Mouth Shut in an Endlessly Noisy World. That's Dan's newest book. You can also check out the book that we talked about a little bit here today, Disrupted, My Misadventure in the Startup Bubble. You can also check out Lab Rats, How Silicon Valley Made Work miserable for the rest of us. And of course, you could find him on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. And you can also check out any future work that he does. You could look at, obviously, the amazing, brilliant work at Silicon Valley, the HBO hit show. Where else? And then uh, Dan Lyons, that's L-Y-O-N-S dot I-O, I believe is your website. Where else can they find you, Dan? Dude, that's about it. Like I'm, I've become a recluse ever since COVID. That, that, that is about it. I wanted to say thank you so much. And your last question is still stuck in my head. And I know you've spent a lot of time working in tech and I've spent a lot of time covering tech. Don't you think like almost everybody I've met are really good people? That's the thing I find really encouraging is most people I've met, you know, Microsoft, when they were getting beat up for their monopoly stuff, they were great people. Everybody I encountered, they were fantastic people. And I'm sure it's the same. Your experience has been the same. 100%. Yeah. I, that's the thing I always remember is like, it was not easy to work at Tesla. It wasn't. There was things I loved about it, things I hated about it. But without question, the thing I loved most was the people. That's what I loved most. We talk about layoffs and this culture that exists amongst most businesses these days where it's like, it's sad to me that we live in a world where it's about churn and burn, hire as many as you can. It's okay. You could fire him if you need to versus what you shared is it was almost painful to fire somebody in, in previous roles. So I hope we get back to that because I mean, I'm, I'm running a small business now. Fortunately, I haven't had to fire a single person yet. There's been a couple of people who weren't doing the best and they ended up going, but it ended up happening that way. They probably would have got fired at some point. I'm not saying it should never happen. I'm doing my best to provide an experience and I'm not perfect. I'm still learning to provide an experience where people love what they do. And so, you know, I hope that more people do and I'm still at very beginning stages. So, you know, I know it will get harder, probably not easier, but I love learning from somebody like yourself who's been in the trenches, studying this, learning describing what you're observing. In some cases, you know, it's been hard, I'm sure. And sometimes you're, you know, you're going to say something that might offend somebody. But in doing so, you're you're shining a spotlight where it needs to be shined. I applaud you for that. And I could tell you are a good person, a good human. Even when we need to say those things about the things that we're observing, it doesn't mean that we're doing it because we're mean-spirited. It means that we we have to have the conversation and we have to be grown up enough to say, look, this is what is happening. 
what can we do to, to make it better? So with all that being said, man, I would love to give you the final word, any advice, any thought, anything that would be a, a final word for the listener, and then we'll wrap up. I try not to offend people anymore. And I get what you said about sometimes people need to be offended to be jarred. I look back on some of the fake Steve stuff, and I feel like at the time I felt like, yeah, this is great. I'm saying the truth. I sort of regret a lot of it now. And I feel like the older I get, the more I think uh, people don't need to be offended. And also, I think I try to become more optimistic than pessimistic. I think it's really pessimistic and cynical in the past. And I think cynicism isn't a good thing. So my, the last word I would leave with is, I think it's better to be positive than negative, to be optimistic rather than pessimistic and to, to affect change without having to hurt people or offend people. And that's a hard lesson that I've learned. Hey, you know what? You've learned your lesson and the fact that you could talk about it now and share is a beautiful part of life. So Dan Lyons, thank you so much for being on Inside Out. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside Out. I hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in business and in life. If you like this show, the best payment you can give is to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. You can also listen to past episodes and see a breakdown of all the best insights by going to insightoutshow.com. And for the record, there's no greater compliment than sharing this show with your friends on social media. So if there's an insight or a lesson that you liked, please share it and tag both me and today's guest. And until next time, remember, your next life-changing breakthrough moment may happen when you least expect it. Insight out.